Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you, Lord, for this day. Lord, we thank you for our children. We thank you for all those funds that they raised. Uh, Lord, we're excited to to be your hands and feet in this community. But Lord, as we are here and as we are going to hear your word, uh, we want it to just resonate in our hearts. Lord, this is about you. We want to focus on you and realize the significance of why you came. And so as we begin this celebration moving towards your birth, Father, uh, I pray that you would just open our ears and our hearts to what you have in store for us today. In your name we pray. Amen. We are going to open up the Genesis. We're going to start at the beginning. We're going to, if you don't have your Bibles, that's okay. We're going to have it up on the screen here. We're going to have Genesis 2, 15 to 17. And then we're going to jump a little bit ahead too, right after that, into Genesis 3, 1 to 7. And so here we go. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. But you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The story continues in Genesis 3, 1 to 7. Now the serpent, he was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. You know what is stinks? You know what's real, like I don't really enjoy is when I lose something. Losing something is no fun. Uh, growing up, I had this fanny pack. I'm not sure if you know what a fanny pack is. I think I have a picture. Uh, Chuck Norris is wearing what is called a fanny pack. And anything Chuck Norris wears, it's guaranteed gold. And so. That is the fanny pack. Uh, I had one of those, but on mine, it had Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles on it. And so you can change that picture now. <laughs> and so I wore it for all occasions, playtime, nap time, dinner time. You know, at uh, any time I could wear my fanny pack, I did. And so 20-year-old Jeremy, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Eight-year-old Jeremy would put some of his favorite things in his fanny pack. I had uh, my favorite Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle. I had all of my money. I had... What dollar. And I had my favorite baseball cards for, you know, just in case I needed these things at any moment of any day, I had them with me. And so one day I went shopping with my mom. I had to go to the bathroom. And so I went to the bathroom, uh, took off my fanny pack, put it down, did my thing, left. And then uh, we started walking home. And uh, halfway home, I'm like, I'm fanny packless. And so <laughs> I had to run back and to the store and grab my fanny pack. But then I got there and sad story, fanny pack was gone. All my favorite things. Uh, and it was tough. And so I, all, all the things I valued were in my fanny pack. And now were somebody else's favorite things. Or stripped and sold for parts. I really don't know. And so, uh, <laughs> but my, so we talk about that and we joke about it. Like, I lost something. And we all can, we can all feel like when we lose something. It's not fun. Um, maybe on a deeper level, my brother, uh, he is had trouble with the law. 
And so there was a time where he was in jail. He was in there jail for three years. And so he got out and just chatting with him. And it's like this new man, just like super thankful for all the things that he took for granted. He's like, I'm just happy like I can walk outside and then walk back inside. He's like, I'm happy I can make my own food albeit craft dinner, but whatever, like, I'm making it. He's like, I'm happy that, you know, I, he had a kid. He's like, I could see my kid. Uh, even though he wasn't able to, he had the, op- even the opportunity, too, was just happy for him. And then he's like, even just to see my family, mom and dad, it's like, he's like, I long for these things. He's like, I knew what I had, and then I didn't ha- have it anymore. I didn't have it at my fingertips. I couldn't, I couldn't, he's like, I just couldn't. It was lost. Then maybe you see on a deeper level to connect with the story. Uh, we've had somebody that we've lost. We've had somebody that we, that we know in our lives that have gone on from this earth. My grandma, love my grandma, sweetest woman, uh, gentle, kind, full of love. Uh, I love her soup. I love hearing her stories. I love just walking with her and talking with her. She taught me so much about persevering with Christ. She taught me so much about prayer. But one day... 2012, it was grandma's time to go home, and she went, and then there's this longing within my heart for that relationship still, right? There's, there's this hole, this gap, because um, I've had this, and now I don't have it anymore. You see a picture, and, and then you're like, oh, yeah, I miss her. You know where she's at. I know where she's in heaven, but there's still it's that I had it, and I didn't anymore. So many of us you know, we grew up with the story of Advent beginning in the manger, in a stable. But truthfully, the story of Advent in the garden. When God created the world, all things were just as they should be. Creation functioned in a perfect order according to God's perfect design. It was how it was meant to be. Man walked with God. He was right there, fully known. Right there to be chatted with. Unafraid. They weren't afraid of him. He just, it was God. But in an instant, all that changed as Adam and Eve disobeyed God, his good instruction. They took of the fruit and they ate it, and then sin entered the world. Fellowship broken, scattered, uh, creation thrown into chaos, darkness, depravity, fear, shame, and selfishness. It was now, it was present. This is our story. But in the midst of this story, there's this hope. A hope of a truly heartbreaking and we're going to look at it a bit. Back to Galatians. I put Galatians. I wonder why. For the last three months, I've been thinking about Galatians. But Genesis 1 to 3 says this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, you may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. The first thing we realize in this verse, in this section of scripture is this. Eve is adding to what God is saying. He never said you must not touch it. This is a little bit of a distortion of God's word, and it's dangerous sometimes we do this. We like to maybe sometimes add on to God's word, add a little bit. And sometimes I'm not sure why she said this or why she did it. Maybe there's a bit of resentment or maybe just ignorance that had just started. But she's being excess in her response. All right, we talked about in Galatians how there was a 617 laws, right? Then they build these hedge around the laws. And so this response was a bit religious. You must not even touch it, he said. 
God simply say, don't eat it. And what we need to take from this, let's not add to what God said. Let's not add to his words. Let's not add to what we read in scripture. Then the story continues. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Verse 8, it might just be the most heartbreaking verse in all of the Bible. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They hid from the one who created them. They hid from the one who loved them. As a father, you know what hurts me the most is when my kids, they know they've done something wrong and they hide maybe a little bit from me. Maybe It's not that they're scared of what they've done, but they're actually just a little bit afraid of me. And they're like, what's dad going to say? What's dad going to do? Am I going to get punished? They don't want to see me because they're afraid. Other translations say this. They hid from his presence. They hid from his presence. The worst place to be is hiding from his presence. That's not where we want to be. We do not want to be hiding from his presence, hiding from the one who created us, be afraid of the one who made us. We don't want to be scurrying away because we are afraid of this almighty God. And sometimes some of us might be hiding. We're afraid of what he might say to us or, or afraid of what he might ask us to do. And so we're like, mm, I'm, I can't ex- be close to him because I'm just not sure. I'm afraid. We're afraid to follow him because maybe growing up our past experiences with him weren't great. Maybe they were a bit legalistic. Maybe they were painful. Maybe other followers of Christ made us feel terrible. It made us feel like we're not worthy. So we're afraid. We hide. We're like, I can't. I just can't do this. I got to hide from him. Those are all lies, all lies. There's no better place to be than in God's presence. There's no place that is safer, more secure, more fulfilling than being with Jesus. And even in our sin, in our pain, even when we mess up, even when we make mistakes, even when my kids make mistakes, I want them to come to me. He doesn't want us to hide from him. He's a good father. And then we see in these next verses, to 11, we sense this grace. And so here's that picture we see of them hiding. It's like, it's like he knows, and they're just hiding, hiding from him. They're not even looking, can't even raise their head. But we get a picture of his grace. Verse 9 says, the Lord called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? There's something happening with grace here about God's character, about his nature that we don't want to miss. In this pronouncement of judgment, right, they surely thought they were going to die. In this rebellion against the king and the kingdom, God is extending grace. He's wooing a bit Adam, Adam out of his shame and into a confession. 
He doesn't come and say, that's it, or it didn't happen, and he just, they just, poof, and they were gone. God goes to find them. God is not asking these questions because he doesn't know the answer. He knows the answer. When God is like, hey, have you eaten of the fruit? He's like, mm, yeah, he, he knows. It's not like he was in the kitchen, and then they were playing behind him, and they broke something, and it was like, oh, did you break something? It's like he knew what happened. In the beginning, what did God say? If you eat that, you're going to die. But God shows up, not with a hammer, not with a hammer, but coaxing them out. Come, tell me what's going on. What happened? What have you done? What, what's, what's going on? And we see this extension even in verse 20, that he's crafted them garments of skin and clothes, and he's clothed them. He's made them their own personal leather garments. You know, he didn't say, oh, those figs, those trees, yeah, it's going to get cold in the winter. Goodbye. He crafted them leather garments, and he clothed them. He didn't leave them on their own. He prepared them. Even in the midst of the rebellion, he wants to bring comfort. Even when we fall short, even when we think that I have done too much, God, he's just calling us back to him. He's always extending us grace. Sometimes we're like, he can't forgive me. He can't do that. No, no, he loves you. So why did Adam and Eve do this? Why did this happen? How did this, why did this all take place? They had it all. They had it all. This is what Adam lived in, in Eve, a perfect world. They had everything. But for some reason, they felt something was missing or didn't understand the magnitude, maybe even what they had. Adam and Eve thought, taught us this about the nature of sin. They taught us what this sin looks like. First, it starts with a bit of unbelief. The serpent starts with these offensive words. Did God really say? Did he really say that? Then he goes at God's character. He doesn't have your best interest. You can't really trust him. Up until this moment, up until this moment before the serpent came, God had been the one who told them what was good. He told them all that was good. Now they're given a choice to see what is really good. Now I'm giving you this choice to see what's really good. And they take it upon themselves to decide what is good. Adam and Eve. See, every temptation, everything starts with an attacking our unbelief. By saying God isn't truly worthy, or he's not even trustworthy, or he doesn't love you. You know better than God, and you, know, you don't need to worry about judgment. You don't have to worry about that. Then this unbelief leads to adultery. It describes this scene in the garden by saying, we gave one of God's creation the glory that belongs to God. Glory in the Hebrew simply means this. It simply means weight. And so what that means is like, if, Jesus, if God weighed 150 pounds, we gave the serpent 150 pounds. They, they're the same. Same level. So when we bring something up, we bring it to the same weight as God. So we give it the glory that should only be given to God, to Christ. We give it the same weight. So you can make things idols in your everyday life. And we've all been there. Maybe we're there right now. Money. Romance, respect, family, comfort, sports, I don't know, kids. Like, we give them the same weight as we give God. Then all this unbelief and this idolatry then leads to this, rebellion. When Adam and Eve sinned, all of a sudden they knew they had already possessed the thing they, had, they needed the most. When they sinned, all of a sudden they knew Oh, we already had it. We had everything. 
they automatically knew something was wrong. Something had changed. It wasn't good. They'd felt something that they'd never felt before, and it wasn't as good as what they had before they sinned. Shame. They felt vulnerable, exposed. They felt out there. They felt like they weren't worthy. They had this relationship with God, but all of a sudden, it was not the same. They no longer had that closeness, that nearbyness, that togetherness. They didn't have that feeling of him right with them. And then they do something silly, and we all do it. We hide. They hid. First, Adam hid behind the trees. Like, the one who created everything, the one who even created the trees, and Adam's like, let's go hide behind these trees. It's like Mike, like Jude, when I play hide-and-go-seek with him, and I go into his room, and I see his feet sticking out from underneath the bed, and I say, hey, Jude, are you in here? No. And so it's like, like, he knew. He knew he was in there. Like, and we hide sometimes, thinking, like, our hiding is going to make it better. How do we hide from God? How do we hide from God now? Sometimes we do this. We tend to hide when we fall short. And sometimes we hide it we, a bit differently than going under the bed or under, like hiding behind some trees. Maybe we're not even honest about the sin, about the things that, that's making us stumble. The man said, the woman, who gave, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit off the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Blaming. Never being honest about the sin. Never just being like, I sinned. Yeah, that, I, I did this. No, that person did that. No, no, that was them. Sometimes we hide behind, like, rationalizing it by saying, but yeah, on the whole, like, I'm a pretty good person. Like, I maybe have made the mistake, but I'm still pretty, like, top-notch. Like, I deserve a black belt in holiness. And so, <laughs> compared to others... But sin is sin. Or maybe you just put your head down under and try to hide from it. Like, think about, like, it's never happened. That, that did not happen. That was, no, I didn't do that. I didn't sin. But you know what it brings? We, sometimes we think it's just going to go away. It's just going to go away. Give it some time. Like, we had some mice in our house, and we're like, we're just hoping they would go away. Mice don't simply go away. <laughs> Mice make a home, <laughs> and then you have to destroy their home. And so we, it just doesn't go away. You have to deal with it. We had to deal with the mice. Another way we do it is when, Ad, when we see Adam and Eve begin to point their fingers, when God, he asked them why they ate of it. They're all standing there, arms pointing out. It's like when I asked my kid, who ate the cookie? Boom, someone's getting poked in the eye because there is pointing happening. Blame shifting. I was in impossible circumstances. Why? I couldn't, like, I was in such a tough spot. What was I supposed to do? They made, they, they did me wrong first. They started it. I finished it. So I ran with the wrong crowd. Well, duh, but you have to run with the wrong crowd. It was a difficult time. Think about, I was under so much stress. Oh, it was so hard. Then through religion is another way we hide. They made for themselves fig leaves. Fig leaves, they are the first religion. I'll write that down. Like, that makes no sense. I'll make up for guilt by going through religious observance. I'll, I'll cover myself. I'll, I can fix this myself. I'll be good and go to church or synagogues or mosque, and I'll donate money. I, I can be okay. 
This is like the man who buys his wife flowers in an attempt to make up for an affair. The number one substitute for a true relationship with God is religion. So we substitute it with religion by cloaking ourselves with the thing that we think will make us holy. This is our story. This is the story. Back at the beginning, we can connect with Adam and Eve, and we see ourselves. Sometimes we have prioritized the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life above God. We have given more weight to other opinions than we did to God's. We bring those opinions up to hit, like the glory of God. We have put more stock in our wisdom than his. We know what's best. I'm pretty awesome. I can figure this out my own. There was devastating consequences to this sin as we read in Genesis. And we see them in verse 16 and 19. There was an amplification of pain. There was more pain now that we saw after the, the fall. And so they said it mean, like mentions childbirth. That childbirth will be painful. For all the women out there, you say, yeah, it, amen, it is painful. But what it means more is this. Childbirth brings life. And what means this now is that life will now be painful. There will be pain in life. And we see the pain throughout the Bible, right? We read about it and we're like, wow, there's some terrible things happening. And we feel the pain throughout our lives too. Yes, there's pain in childbirth. Childbirth brings life. There's pain that we experience now through the fall in our life. There is also this relational conflict. And we feel this in relationships, maybe sometimes with people who call themselves believers. There's this sometimes relational conflict because we still feel the effects of sin. There was futility, futility, futility that calls for a sip of water. Throat's hurting. The land was now against him. The ground was no longer their friend. The land meant work. And we feel that in our lives too. Work sometimes feels hard, painful. And now there was death. From dust we came, to the dust we will return. These are the consequences of what has happened. We feel them all. We feel them today. You know what? They didn't drop dead when they ate it, but they began to die. Like a battery, battery slowly losing its power. Slowly. But this wasn't even the worst. This wasn't even the worst part of the story. Those things, yes, they aren't great. We see those in our lives. But the worst part of Genesis 3 is this. Genesis 3 is about the kingdom lost. There is much lost in Genesis 3, nothing as significant as the loss of God's presence. The only thing we most desperately need to thrive as created beings is the presence of our creator and our king. We lost the presence of God with no way back in. To see him again, to see him again, to be with him again, would be our death. Nothing would ever be complete again. Nothing would ever make sense again. We could never again attain true and abiding happiness. This was the greatest of all tragedies. We lost relationship to our father, our companion, our best friend, our shepherd, our lily of the valley, our bright and morning star, the one who made life complete. It's gone. Without it, they felt discombobulated, confused. They were left like blind men and women, reaching out to try to heal the disease we neither understand nor can fix on, even on our own. We can't even fix it. You see all sorts of things here, consequences to the citizens, consequences of life. We saw creation reordered in a different way. 
We saw there was peace in life, there was no chaos, and now you have thorns and thistles instead of vegetation that's meant to feed us. We saw death. Creation twisted. Paul wrote in his letter, in the book of Romans, that all creation simply groans for him. It just groans, longing to be redeemed, longing to be reconciled. There's to go back to the kingdom, to be back in Eden, back into what what we were meant to be, what we were meant to live by. And this is what we feel. This is what you have felt. You have felt this longing, and you've heard this word a lot today as we've sang songs, and as we think about Adam and Eve, we think about this longing, this longing, this angst in our soul. Our soul remembers this, but we weren't even there. There's something in us that remembers this, that remembers what it was like, and even even though we were never there, but we feel the longing to go back. We feel the longing for that, what it was like in Eden. The writer of Ecclesiastes, he says, God has put eternity in our hearts. You cannot fill eternity with what is temporal. There is a longing in Adam and Eve and those for them and after them for Eden. We have a sense of it. We were created beings like them, our ancestors. We feel the gap within our hearts. We feel it. We feel it. And that separation isn't fulfilled by anything we can try to do. There is a God-shaped hole. I say this a lot. There's a God-shaped hole of a relationship lost in our hearts. The people have no idea that they had lost it, but they know that that hole has to be filled. And we, in this world, we try to fill that hole with many things. But the only thing is just one thing. This separation could have been it. This could have been it. That we see in the picture where they leave the garden, that could have been it. In every other story, that would have been it. That would have ended But this story is different. There is a turning point of the whole Bible, a scene so shocking, a scene that is described as so shocking, even the angels were left in bewilderment because of this. God came looking for Adam, and what was expected was for him, maybe Adam, right? There will be death, to be destroyed. That was going to be it. But he came looking for his lost son. And when God finds him, when God finds Adam, He makes him a promise. But he looks at the serpent and he says this in Genesis 3.15. And I will put amenity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Right then, amid the darkness, God spoke spoke a word of hope. A savior would come. Born of a woman, to defeat the enemy and deliver God's people, this right here is the first promise of Christ, right at the beginning. Right when it felt like all hope was lost, there was a promise, a hope that was made. Scholars referred to Genesis 3.15 as proto-uangelian. That was impressive, I know. I worked really hard for like 10 minutes to try to pronounce that right. Maybe I did. I don't know. Anyways, but it is the first gospel. Genesis 3.15. From the first moment of our need for rescue, when we needed it the most, when there was a moment we needed rescue, God's promise was there. 
Before he addressed Adam and Eve, he turned to the serpent and announced that sin would not have the final say and that the schemes of the enemy will never prevail. Mary would have this offspring and he will be, his name will be Jesus. And God points to a cosmic battle that will take place where the serpent will bite Jesus' hill, but Jesus will crush his head. First prophecy, prophecy, every story in the Bible flows out of this promise. His head will be crushed. Jesus would come in Romans 5.14, tells us as a second version of Adam, a truer and better Adam who did what Adam and Eve should have, withstood the temptation of Satan even though the stakes were higher and the temptation was stronger because God was about restoring his kingdom. The kingdom of God is about dwelling. The whole of the Bible can be summed up in three words, God with us. It's always about him trying to bring the kingdom to us. Eden is about God with us. The children of God being pulled out of Exodus, the establishment of the tabernacle is about the presence of God. Solomon building his temple is God with us. Christ coming, putting on flesh and dwelling among us in the incarnation is about God with us, the presence of God. The coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost is about God with us, the presence of God among his people. The new Jerusalem we read about in the book of Revelation is about the presence of God among his people. He is about coming to us. There's nothing we can do to try to come to him. He's pursuing us. The dwelling of God among his people is what the hearts and souls of all humankind are angsting and longing for. We feel this longing. We even feel it now. You're like, I long to be close to him. And you sometimes don't know why. It's like, well, we just got to draw closer to him. We got to read our Bible. We got to pray. We got to fellowship together. And that longing, that God-shaped hole, it just begins to fill with his glory and his presence. For some of you, maybe you don't even know him. You've never met him. And you're like, I feel that. I do. I feel I'm looking. I'm searching. I've always wondered. What is it I'm looking for? We, it's here. It's Jesus. He will fulfill that God-shaped hole in your heart. I'm going to call the worship team up. The promise is this. And we see it right in the Advent starts in the garden. It fell. Creation. There's separation. But there's promise. There's hope. And the hope comes in the name of a person who will be born in a manger. Like Adam, Jesus is tempted by Satan. But unlike Adam, Jesus is in the wilderness, having fasted for 40 days. Also unlike Adam, Jesus receives three temptations, not just one. And he resists each time. He How does he resist? By doing what Adam failed to do, focusing on what God had said. Unlike Adam, Jesus actually felt the attack of Satan. He felt it. In Genesis, after tempting Adam and Eve, they let the serpent slither away. It's like the serpent slithers away. But when Jesus withstands him temptation, his temptation, the serpent actually bites. Yet in that moment, on the cross, when it appeared that the serpent had won, God was actually crushing his head. Adam and Eve disobeyed God and ate from a tree and died. Jesus will obey God and climb up on a tree, willingly to die and bring life. He'll climb up on a tree to take the curse that we could be released from it, willingly went to that tree. 
He will take that flaming sword of justice that guarded the entrance of the presence of God. As we see it as Adam and Eve left in that picture, there was an angel protecting the presence. He took that. He said, all are welcome in into his presence the way it should be. That's why the scene ends in verse 21. God takes an animal and kills it and uses the skin to cover the nakedness because this points towards Jesus' death where his death clothed us in his righteousness. It wasn't just simply putting clothes on them. He's like, you're going to be covered in my righteousness. There's promise. Some of us are longing. Maybe you know him and you're still, you're just longing for him, longing for a deeper relationship. You know, he's, he wants you to just, I can say just draw closer, but know that he's, he's died for you. He loves you. That a life with him is a better than a life without him. That his presence is where we're supposed to be. If you feel lost, you feel a bit hopeless, he's calling us into his presence. Maybe you don't know him. Maybe you're searching and you've been searching. Man, he has come. He'll fill that shape in our hearts. God shaped him. Hole in our hearts. Uh, Julie's going to lead us in a song. Interesting response. And again, I just want to take some, a little bit of time and just focus on him. Lord, I'm longing for you. Draw close to him. Maybe you, you know this is wrong, true in your heart, and you've never made that commitment to follow him. He's longing for you, and you're longing for him. I would love to pray with you to accept him into your life. Because there's a promise, and he's good on his promises. And he promises to be with you. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you Lord, that in the midst, in the beginning, when all felt hopeless and lost, you made a promise. You made a promise to us. And you fulfill your promise by sending your son, Jesus. And we can find hope that this, is just, this isn't even it either, that there's another coming, that he's coming back again for his bride. But in our time here, now that we can have relationship with with you, God, through Jesus. That we don't feel that separation anymore. So, Father, we all long for you. We want to draw close to you. Even as I walk with you right now, Jesus, I, I long for you. I, I, just, I, can't, I just can't get enough of you. But I want to keep focusing on you, Christ. So as Julie leads us in this, or just, as she plays, we're going to focus on you. And if you want to make that commitment, I would love to pray with you. Amen.